Fellow music lovers, you are now tuned in to yet another exciting adventure with us here on Chunky Glasses, the podcast. I am your host, Kevin, as usual, and we have a very special podcast for you today. It is doesn't fall into our normal episodes, doesn't fall into our discologist. This is just something we felt we needed to do. Uh, Neil Diamond is one of the greatest singers, songwriters, entertainers of all time, and uh, when our good buddy Drew uh, from Blankus Larry, amongst other things, said, hey... Uh, I used to listen to this as a kid. My parents made me listen to this. I've seen it with my mom three times. And I said, you know, I have a very similar experience. I've never gone to see Neil Diamond, uh, but I used to sit in a car every day uh, commuting and uh, and have to listen to Neil Diamond and Barry Manilow, which you're going to hear us talk about a little bit in the next hour and a half or so. Uh, but it, it shaped my, uh, my musical identity, I think, more than I thought it did. And uh, so we wanted to we wanted to sit down and talk about it and, and celebrate this man's catalog. Sort of on the just around the time that he announced that he is going to be retiring. And so uh, that is what we're doing. This is like this is this is this is first of all this is nerdy, 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 nerdy. Uh, but it is also amazing if you aren't familiar or do not celebrate yet the the catalog of Neil Diamond. I'm not talking about the hits like Sweet Caroline. Well, there's some hits in here. Well, wait, what am I saying? They're all hits. Um, but uh, you go back through the stages of his career, and we're trying to highlight and show you that this guy, uh, why he was the best, and what makes him so special, and uh, and weirdly, a question we didn't ask in this, but why this isn't happening now? Who Who is this generation's Neil Diamond, uh, if there even needs to be one? But that's what we're doing. So if you're ready, if you strap in, um, open your mind. This isn't stuff you usually listen to. Please listen to this because uh, uh, it's, uh, it, man, this, this, this hit me in my heart talking about this. Uh, so let's head on down to the basement, meet my friends Drew and uh, Marcus K. Dowling. You know him. Celebrate the career, the music, the, the amazing entertainer that is Neil Diamond. Actually, the whole film is so fucking good. The whole film is, is, is egregious. It's two hours long. That actually almost kept me from watching it. Kevin, so Alex. literally the conversation was uh, last night in, in this in this household. Not not down here in the basement, but upstairs. Oh, no. I was like, hey, baby. I got <laughs> to do some research. It's oh, no. <laughs> like, what are you going to research? And then I had to tell her all about how I watched the jazz singer Starring Neil Diamond way too many times as a child. And she goes, oh, that sounds interesting. And and I was like, do you want to watch it with me? She's like, I don't think I do. <laughs> I said, okay, well, I'll be up in. And I looked on, looked on the iPad. And it's, <laughs> I was just like, 
two fucking hours. What the fuck is this? Is it really? It's, it's two fu- it's an hour and fifty six minutes. Fifty six minutes long. I watched it from eleven p.m. to one a.m. Sir. But oh, the, did you? Oh, so you watched it because you forced me to because you were like because I'm like if Kevin's watching it, I have to watch it again. Okay, so we're good. Like I've seen it like a hundred times, right? But I hadn't seen it in like ten years, huh? Or longer from my the payoff at the end is worth every minute. I mean, it yes. is, but at the same time, God, there's some really horrific it's acting. Bad. That, I mean, that I mean, first of all, Neil Diamond in blackface. Oh. <laughs> It's a remake of the jazz singer, so understand this is like sort of a his- history thing. Um, in case you didn't guess, uh, folks, we're talking about Neil Diamond tonight. The great Neil Diamond. The great Neil Diamond. Uh, as I explained to uh, you, uh, Drew, or down here again. Welcome back, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, sometimes, like we just did a Lenny Kravitz one, and that was more just to like we 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 listened to it, we we scheduled it, and then we're like, holy fuck, this album is great. Is this going to be after the Lenny Kravitz one? Oh yeah, Kravitz one is out. Okay, so this is like after. Is this the one that immediately? Is no, 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 no. After? This is episode three fifty. Okay. Oh wow. Yeah. So uh, a so, so what 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 I'm saying is like some of these are where we do that and we give you a lot of technical information. Uh, tonight, I think what we're going to try to do is try to make the case for like you know if you're younger, uh, if you have bad taste in music, you probably are thinking that Neil Diamond guy is a clown. And that is the incorrect stance. Everybody in this room, yes? That is, is an that, incorrect that is, stance. You are, you are wrong. Incorrect stance. And and it's a position that, uh, you know, I don't know that I can personally, like, have a conversation with somebody who thinks that Neil Young, uh, not Neil Young, uh, Neil Diamond is one of the most talented songwriters of all time. Um, but Neil uh, Young likes losses audio. Yeah. A yes, lot. Yes. Different, Neil Young. Different Neil. Mainlining <laughs> some romantic sentimentalism. But, <laughs> So, so to give you a little background yeah. on this guy, um, you know a bunch of the hits that we're going to get to. Uh, Solitary Man, Cherry Cherry, uh, Sweet Caroline, if you like sports, you've, you've sung it. That, that, uh, uh, Saving Silverman, I completely forgot about that. Completely forgot about that. Use, but it was the, uh, what, what's the, Super Diamond. That's right. I mean, I'm a Neil Diamond fan and I've never seen that movie. So oh, I, it, That's actually great. It's funny. Um but uh, here's a guy who was born uh, way back in 1941, and um, in a, it was a Jewish-Russian family in New York, in Brooklyn, uh, growing up the way Brooklyn people did back in that day. Uh, at this point in his life, 38 songs in the top 10 of the Billboard adult contemporary charts. He sold more than 100 million records, and he is one of the best-selling musicians of all time. Uh, one of the reasons that is sort of his history in in songwriting. Got his first guitar when he was 16 years old. Um, found out about Pete Seeger as people often do about that age. And like, what the fuck? Like, if you the first time you hear Pete Seeger, if you hear him as a kid, it is so like it's it's just delightful to look back and be like, oh, that's a song. <laughs> that is what a song is. Um, and uh, and then from there, did what everybody does when they discover they have a little bit of talent for this stuff. He wrote uh, poems and songs to get chicks. I mean, that's he, and I don't think yep. that ended at any point in his career, which we're going to talk Remember about. That that is the the definition of his career. Yeah, the yeah. definition <laughs> of career. Yeah. Um, so guy goes to college. Uh, he's he's doing well there. Eventually, gets a contract uh, writing songs for fifty bucks a week. And this is where he's like, "Fuck! I've been writing all these poems, sometimes songs, and and I've got this guitar. People like what I'm doing." Um, 
he's steeped in New York. Broadway is big at that point, which is going to play into his career uh, immensely. And uh, and so he he sort of sticks to landing and writes a bunch of songs for these people. Ends up in the Brill Building, which brief history on that. Uh, all the hits that you like from the '60s came from the Brill Building. When he had a job there, he was writing with people like Burt Bacharach, Bobby Darin, Hal David, Carol King, Lieber and Stoller. Yes. Barry Mann, John Mercy, Neil Sedaka. Yes. Like, these people, along with uh, people like Paul Simon, Art Garfunkel, they drove the industry. We, The best analog now is Nashville, I think. No, easily the best analog. I was going to ask about the analog because you know when I when I'm reading a little bit about Neil, you know, it's it's sort of like he he has to sell a song per week in order to make rent. Yeah, and he did, and he did, and he did. It's the, think, the, think the analog about is struggling artist. Yeah, the analog is Music Row in Nashville for sure. Right? Yeah, now. for sure. So yeah. so he's writing with all these now legendary songwriters, and then um, he kind of gets not fed up with it, but it's like you know I want to do something different. Uh, and and for me, this is where it gets interesting because this is, I think, the best thing you're going to find to listen to him um, on iTunes or anywhere. Uh, signs a deal with uh, Bang Records in 1966. And uh, this is where shit like the Monkees tap Bang Records to write a lot of hits, including Neil Diamond. Uh, that co- collection is on iTunes. Um, and around that time, he started like becoming more and more of a, a person who was performing in public. And throughout the 60s, we saw, you said, the silent generation you mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, your stance was that he is a representation of, of that, or the best representation. Yeah, I mean, I maintain that Neil Diamond was the answer to the generation that kind of came before the boomers, mm-hmm. often referred to as the silent generation. Right. Um, they were, you know... College, out of college, before the hippies came onto the scene. And they didn't really buy into, you know, what was going on in the 60s. And then Neil came along and gave them a version of popular music, of rock and roll, that they could get on board with. Yeah, yeah. it was theater. It was um, rock and roll in podcast air quotes. (laughs) Uh, But it it was... um, Look outside what you... Think for an edgy song, or I mean, this is clever turns of phrase turned up to like a million. It's amazing. His first hit was Solitary Man, so we're going to start with that. Um, and this turned out to be very uh, pertinent to his career. Yeah. <laughs> this is therapy on wax, but this is Solitary Man. Loving him Then Sue came along Loved me strong That's what I thought Me and Sue But that too Don't know that I will But until I can find A DJ in Georgetown. He 
DJ at numerous bars in Georgetown, everything from Chadwick's to, to Champions to uh, Nathan's on the corner of Wisconsin and M Street, which I don't know, it's not there anymore, but it was kind of like the last of like the old guard Georgetown bars. Mm-hmm. So the silent generation that you were talking about, this was their hangout. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're, you're a person of relatively solid means at this point. You're around like, you know, 55, 60. Yep. So you're, you're married. You've been married for 35 years to the same wife and you've, you've lived through the 60s. You've lived through the 70s. You made all your money in the 80s. Kids are off the college. Right, exactly. Right. And so like now you're just going out for a nice Saturday night. So you could play disco to get them to two-step. And that was about it, you know, and disco extends even into like, Things that sample disco-friendly songs. So, like, Nelly's Hot in Here was a favorite. Like, uh, let's see, uh, Mo Money, Mo Problems by uh, Biggie and Puffy. That was a big <laughs> hit because that samples I'm Coming Out by Diana Ross. Then, if they wanted to get funky, you're like, okay, I can maybe I could play, like, you know, some Brick House or something. But no, they would really break out the big funky, like, dance steps to Neil Diamond. And I didn't know this. And I didn't expect this. But when it happened, you're like, oh, my God. So this is a real thing. These are people who like hippie generation people I learned later on as I you know, DJ for like five years. They really got into like kind of like the deeper, heavier stuff that wasn't like was like rock adjacent and more like actual funk mm-hmm. and more actual rap. They, they, they could do it like white lines and stuff like that. Early 80s rap. But like for that silent generation, because they didn't dive that far into culture, really. Because, well, you know, economics, like, you know, kind of like lifted them out of having to, like, go to Woodstock to have a cultural experience. Well, it's also, you know, the generation that was born into the most fortune. Right. Uh, than any and generation. And generational wealth at that point. Yes, that's right. Right. So, so they, like, so they, for them, this was not a thing. So as deep as they were willing to go was, like, Neil Diamond. And I learned it by accident because I played it's funny. I'm a believer queued up right there. And that was one of the songs you just played. And you're like, you know, I'll just watch the room explode. Mm -hmm. And these people would come over to me and they're like, that was DJ Casanova back then. They're like, DJ Casanova. Wow. You really know our stuff. You really know our hits. These are essential songs for us. Neil Diamond is a, is a generational superstar. And I'm like, the sweet Caroline guy from college. Yeah. (laughs) And they're like, Oh no. Dive in, man. And this guy, like, and, gave me CDs. And, and I think, uh, you know, it, it's not as obvious early on in, like, kind of his late 60s, but it becomes more obvious as we get it to some of these later songs that this is a guy who understood his target demographic yep. better than just about anybody in the business and knew how to push their buttons and strike a chord and have a hit. I, I, I want to play two songs the first song i want to play is is uh is to that point which is it ended up with the monkeys right and then the second we're gonna play that and discuss it a little bit but then the second one is i don't think that point because i don't know that this other song falls into that okay and but yeah. but here, here's a little bit of you know this song and uh and this is how it how, how god intended it to be <laughs> Someone 
Think of the contrast between where you have the monkeys are like all like mop headed and like, yeah, this is fun, fun. And that, which is like just the tightest fucking like awkward love song. Yeah. Like it's like you were saying, it's so smooth. It's, it's tight. it's the same song, but it feels like a completely different genre of music, and and I, and I don't know if back now we can divide like when you say something like punk or DIY and stuff like that implies that like okay, there's an appeal to like not being able to play your instruments or whatever. I don't know if back in the '60s there was actually that yet. Yeah. I think you had some garage rock like the MC5 were kicking around in there somewhere, but generally Shout out to the White Panthers, yeah, but but generally bands were. Uh, they excelled at what they did, and that's why you could have a Brill building. That's why Paul Simon could exist, right? Because they were like, oh, shit, we have to write the best song. Everything else was relegated as like a, a Dylan like clone playing in a coffee shop for the rest of their life. Right. And and then th- th- here comes this guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. The thing I wanted to say about like everybody in the Brill building, so Carol King, all the, all the who became like mm-hmm. artists outside of the Brill building. So like Carol King... Paul Simon, Art Garfunkel, Neil Sedaka, and Neil Diamond, especially. Mm-hmm. There's something about knowing that you're writing a song that's going to be played by a band and knowing how to work within the structure provided by said band that really narrows down the work of all of those songwriters who later became vocalists. Mm-hmm. And, like, not singing outside of the realm, not going too low, not going too high, but just, like, driving the perfect line. No, talk about, like, working within the idiom. Yeah, like, completely. Like, like this is just, like, here, here's the memo of the day. Here's the idiom you got to work in. Yeah, I right? mean, he's, he, he's, he's probably bringing to the table, you know, the lyrics, the melody, and the yeah. chords. Right. he wrote it, uh, no doubt, on an acoustic guitar. Yeah. And they're going to go into a studio. And they're going to bring the band in with the horns. Uh, And there's going to, you know, there's probably going to be about a half an hour spent on arranging this thing and just banging it out because you had to. And that band's going to be like 30 people deep. Yeah. This is a spoiler because we are going to talk extensively about the jazz singer. But the, please, the wildest realization (laughs) was he's opening for a comedian and he has a string section, a band that is like 40 people deep. I was like, but, what the actual fuck? So also to that point, I want to bring up about this era that he's recording, especially 66 to 68. You have session musicians who are paid by the hour. They are like basically like union employees who come in yep. by the hour. Yep. So if you have a song, you're not going to like v- drastically try to sing out of the register and like over sing parts so that you know like the instrumentalists have to work around you mm-hmm. you want to get these people literally in and out of the room as fast as humanly possible with like at least three albums done there's no fuss in a day there's no fuss so you get somebody like neil diamond who like on this version of i'm a believer there's nothing outside the realm it's just perfectly like to- the tonality yeah. could it be more pristine it's just it's astounding to consider and then when you think about like 
other artists of that era who are like solo vocalists and you're like and you know like you get a lot of this is kind of like the the deviating from like the the norm expectation era but you get people like neil diamond who like if you just liked like 1957 rock and roll mm-hmm. you know straight ahead boom this is what we're doing this is your guy because like at Nobody least in this really era, it's right. might be yeah. with a little something extra, and and, and that's where I want to get. I, I want to get into like that that little extra something because, given the time of this, this this is a big hit. That if you live through the eighties, this this is a big hit. Period. Right, but you probably know UB forties version. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not. You know, I think it was like you know a minor hit at well the for time, him for him. But but time. but this is, a, this is the song itself is a giant hit, and you know as. As pop and as friendly and as of the time as I'm a believer was, uh, where the fuck does like red red wine fit in? Here you go. Go to my head, make me forget that I still need a soul. Red, red wine It's up to you All I can do I've done But memories won't go No memories won't go I'd have sworn but with time, thoughts of you would leave my head. I was wrong, and I find just one thing makes me forget red, red wine. So we were we were just uh, uh, talking about you know sex drugs and rock and roll yes. and, and neil diamond's a little bit more of, of a seducer there's there's not a lot of sex going on here <laughs> it's all seduction it's all the process of seduction it's the it's the journey right to get to the end result uh not the end result itself right so for people who may like okay so people that like slow music i had a long conversation with people that like slow music today about my my love of neil diamond and they were like how do you like that guy I'm like, well, the music you guys like is about sex. Like, literally, like, mm-hmm. the vocalist is talking about making love to you. Literally, Boyz II has a song called I'll yeah, Make Love yeah. to you. Yeah, you. You've made this point before, yeah. like, that, that, you know, it's a difference between songs about sex and songs about uh, about romance and stuff. Yeah. This isn't... This is, but, th- but this, this is, is about why, neither. This is, yeah, this is why this fucks me up, because this is about neither. But at the same time, Pendergrass would do the shit out of this. Oh. He probably did. No, but it would be and a whole different other song. Cause it, the- yeah, it, <laughs> it would be. And it shows, and, and UB40 was the ubiquitous yeah. uh, version that everybody right. knows. They turn it into a fun like thing. And, you know, at the heart of the song is is seduction, but it's also, like, it's not clear. Like, is it seduction or is it a guy who, like, really wants a girl, but instead he's drunk? And can't do it. Can't, like, God. work it out. He can't, can't work can- it out. So he's just. And uh, we can all imagine that that was actually a problem that Neil Diamond had. Yes, yes, exactly. Can you imagine but, him like at a bar on Broadway, or even like right. like Cafe Wa on Lower East Side, and there's some young ingenue who's just like singing on stage, 
and Neil's like half a bottle in and he's just like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, well, what am I doing here? And so, and, 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 you know, we're, we're, we're talking about this while staring at a picture of, uh, Neil Diamond, <laughs> the you? bang years album cover. Um, and, and a little side note, um, and I've seen Neil Diamond a, a, a handful of times over the past decade uh, with my mom. It was generally a perennial date yes. that we would have whenever Neil would go out on tour. And, and the most recent uh, a concert that we saw at the Baltimore Arena, yeah. Royal Farms, oh, the Royal Arena, Farms. Arena um, during I think it was a, this song called Brooklyn Roads that we don't need to go um, listen to. Um, they did a, a photo album. And so, you know, there's this, it's like baby pictures of Neil <laughs> and toddler pictures of Neil and adolescent pictures of Neil. And the crowd's kind of going like, oh, isn't that cute? And then they show this picture that you see on the cover of Neil Diamond, The Bang Years, where he's looking seductive and mysterious in front, of the, <laughs> in front of the brick wall. And I'll yeah. tell you, the entire arena just right. melts. And just swoons for this guy in a timeless, you know, it's a timeless thing. Yeah. And it's multiple generations of people. This is this is a guy that just knows how to turn the right screw. Yeah. yeah. And, and so songs like this um, and this look uh, led up to him um, doing in 1972. It's funny you said Broadway, Dowling. Um, he performed for 20 consecutive nights at a place called the Winter Garden Theater. I know where that is. And uh, I, I think that was, there's a weird fact. It's like the, the only person who, yeah, the last occasion where uh, had staged any one-man shows uh, for that long had been Al Jolson, which is going to explain the jazz singer later. <laughs> God, it totally does. Um, but, but so he was hanging out on Broadway, right, every night <laughs> for, for a month. And, and at this point, he's, he's out in the world. He's got his, 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 uh, his sexy... In quotes, songs, but and, and and this is where I think it starts to get like super interesting because it gets out of the pop thing. It gets really into the like what you were saying, Drew, the seductiveness of what he's what he's doing. He had a hit that I want to play a little bit of, and then we're going to get into a, a couple songs. One of them I know you I hadn't heard forever in blue jeans, so we're going to talk about that. Okay, uh, yes. but uh, but but this one I had heard uh, because it was played not from this album, but it was played in. A car when I was a kid on a commute. We have a similar experience with this, Drew, mm-hmm. where like every goddamn morning, mm-hmm. it 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 just was the the hit. Like I was born in seventy two, so this is now like eight years later that this is that this is still done. But the result of those shows was this album, um, which is just <laughs> I have the quote, is, I have the quote from Lester Bangs. I can read which it. is just called "Hot August Night." You, we'll read the quote later because oh, it's, it's one of these songs we're gonna play. Uh, and uh, it is, I guess it's August is what I'm saying. It's at least August, uh, but but he had this song "Country Granola Sweet," and it, it's the fucking jam, and, it, and it's uh, it, it tastes like jelly.
song been on my mind And the tune can be sung and the words all rhyme And it won't offend if you sing in a school that I will send you home. Never knowing what you're growing. The ugh and the ha ah, you heard of that. That man has some dedication. Yeah. Is, is what I'm saying. He, and if you look at the album cover, which I haven't decided if the bang ears or this should be the, the cover of the post, but uh Marcus, tell them a little bit about the album cover. Okay, so Lester Bangs, the the, the most prominent rock writer of, of all time, probably. Um the person that's most like, you know, associated with rock journalism, was fired from Rolling Stone magazine in nineteen seventy three. <laughs> Because of his review yeah. of Neil Diamond's Hot August Night, which includes the following. Attending the release of this slewest of multi-orgasmic sounds from Meister D is some of the grooviest garnish this side of a Melanie press kit. Here on the very front cover is Neil in full flight, working it out. And what is he doing? Pretending to jerk off. <laughs> That's what. He's pantomiming wanging his clanger. And from the look on his face, I'd say he's about to shoot off. Whamming his clanger? Yes. That's amazing. And the only bogus part is that he'd like everyone out there to think it's 13 inches long. (laughs) It's truly a pick to post in your den or rec room for years to come. No matter what some of them psychedelic schmucks with their Hawkwind nightshade garlands might think. You don't even need a blacklight. And it's great to spill beer on or throw your girlfriend up against the party's ladder leagues. Yeah, I mean that that accurately describes the album cover. <laughs> like uh Neil was feeling it and this is this is a, a thing that I have a pro not a problem that has always confused me about him is with the Broadway uh production of all this stuff which appeals to me. Like I mean like right. music durance like we listen to Broadway soundtracks growing up, right? All the time. Yeah. And and so that's nothing new and now actually fuck it, America listens to Hamilton. Yes. Nobody mm-hmm. can say shit anymore. Uh but that seems like a f- an awkward thing that was going on in the basement of his childhood. <laughs> like, he was just like, I made it, guys. But behind it is it's a great fucking song, and people, like you said, are buying into this. This is not when you saw him, Drew, but this is obviously like obviously. In 1970, <laughs> yeah, 1972. So this is a man who is in the, in the prime of his life. The sexual prime of his life. He's 32 years old. Yeah, he's 32 years old. Not necessarily writing sexy songs. But like he's got the the jean jumpsuit. He's whamming his clanger. And, you know, it's unbuttoned. And, 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 and this is where I think people eventually get a little turned off and don't. They see it as schmaltz a little bit. Well, I think you know this album is is probably the the closest he gets to really rocking out. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and he's not cons- you know he's, he's he's he hasn't been considered a rocker um, ever really in his career. But there's some rocking moments on this album, and if you know if you look at the album cover, which it's hard to look away from the <laughs> album cover, 
Um, <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, it's 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 you know top to bottom denim and and long hair. I mean, he's 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 actually like potentially kind of bucking his formula a little bit with this with right. this, with this look. Um, but you know, the the album works, and it was a big album for him. Um, I think it's a part of that kind of the '70s era mm-hmm. where the live rock and roll album meant something you know any any serious artist at that time needed to put out an important live album that was a statement you didn't put out greatest hits albums as unless it was on stage yeah you right. know recorded right. on stage and 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 I, I you know i would recommend listeners to check this album out as one of probably three recommendations as a starting point if you mm-hmm. want to explore neil of of you know where to get started on you say so, yeah you start in the bang years I think that that's gonna give you a, a good bass. You're gonna hear a lot of the songs. Then you're gonna hear these like Elvisized, uh, which there's a lot of it. But and you bring up uh, 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 Broadway. You know, yeah. when does Broadway become Vegas? That, that's yeah. actually you know a question I want to explore because he's definitely wor- working the Broadway angle mm-hmm. early, but he's I think you know in some respects kind of following Elvis's lead on right. the Vegas right. angle mm-hmm. of, of yeah, things. Yeah, definitely want to jump in on this. Um, because 67 comeback special is one of my favorite visual moments of all time. Uh, there's a thing about middle-class respectability that comes into the rock conversation in the late 60s, early 70s, as television and visual become a thing. Because at this point, the rock industry is starting to become an industry, mm-hmm. and millions of these records are being sold. So it's very visual at this point, and it's very much appealing to middle-class sensibility. Because these are records that are being sold in record stores that are on street corners in America. So you have to like understand that there's like this youthful thing that's like full of vigor and life and progressive, you know, ide- idealism. But then there's also like the parents and that weird generation that we were talking about, the solid generation mm-hmm. as well. So to stand in the middle of all of that, you end up with something that looks like how August night which you take this like big instrumentation from Broadway because you, because the, the silent generation and older, they know Broadway and they're comfortable with that. And then you take the gesticulation and the presentation from this like younger hippie ish mm-hmm. hippie inspired generation. And it doesn't work together as a cohesive whole, but for the purposes of gaining respectability within a household of people of multiple generations, you put that out and you put that on the, the, the turntable and everybody in the house has a connective tie to it in some way. That's, and a lot of these are like, it's funny in thinking about like rock and roll at the time this was coming out and like he, he, he clearly was aware of like people like the Doors. Right. He's sporting a Doors look, right? <laughs> yeah. And a, lot, and a lot of these songs are from the Greek theater, like in, in California. Yeah. And if you go to, again, jump up to the jazz singer. It's all about you got to go to the the left coast to like to make it, yeah. Right, mm-hmm. and, and and that. So, I mean, this is in his his DNA, right? Um, around this time, though, there, there's a song that uh, you requested be on here that I never heard. Drew Forever in Blue Jeans. So, t- t- before we play this song, what, what's the deal? I mean, it's a monster song. Yeah. Period. <laughs> Uh, it was obviously a big hit for, for Neil and, and we're, we're, you know, we're now, I think probably about five years beyond the hot August night. Album. Yeah. So we're getting into the late seventies here, um, moving into what I might consider or uh, what I consider Neil's yacht 
schlock era which is kind of challenging yeah it's the uh you know take yacht rock that kind of vibe of yacht rock and really mainline some romantic sentimentalism and 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 you come up with this this kind of thing i mean you know um this is one of the songs that like just is so burned into my brain from the you know the earliest memories that I have of even hearing music. It's, it's the, yeah. you know, I can smell the secondhand smoke from the camel filters in the car, riding in the back seat with my parents in the front seat, listening to this song. Um, the other thing I'll say, like, I used to think it was maybe a bridge, but maybe it's the chorus. And I used to think this was the greatest bridge in the world. And I hate bridges generally in songs, mm-hmm. but the resolve from the chorus or bridge or whatever yeah. it is back into the verse, the second verse, yeah. it's just this like naturally monumental kind of sound. Like there's there's, there's something he's got going on here. This is I think it's a I think it's a just a monster. It's a monster song, song. And, and and it is looking back before he dives into, it, before he embraces full Vegas. It's <laughs> looking back into his I think career at the, at the Brill Building. It's mm-hmm. Like it's it it's tight. It is is yeah. It's, it's, it's just so well done. Yeah, just so well done. Uh, Forever in Blue, it's just a little bit. Money talks, but it don't sing and dance and it don't walk. Long as I can have you here with me, I'd much rather be forever in blue jeans. Honey is sweet, but it ain't nothing next to baby's Pardon me, I'd like to say we do okay forever in blue jeans. Baby tonight, baby tonight by the fire all alone, you and I. Nothing around but the sound of my heart. No, no chorus, pre-chorus. That's just fucking straight jam. Yeah. Like that is, and you have to. Who who plays the bridge as the chorus? Neil fucking Diamond. That's who, <laughs> that's who plays the bridge as the chorus. The bridge was so good. He didn't need a chorus. Yeah. He just said, like, "Hey, the bridge is the chorus, and that's all we need." But yeah. but this is this this type of songwriting. I think is is gone by the wayside. First of all, like, but that is like. Writers in general eventually uh, get bored with their form, right? And they you fuck with it, and that's where we get a lot of bad art. But I think what we've seen throughout the scope of uh, just the songs we played, but also the, the course of Neil Diamond's career, along with a lot of people at the Brill Building, but his specifically, you don't 
every time he gets bored with it, he comes up with something different and new, and it like and it fucking works. And it's just like, what is going on with you, man? You have some supernatural power to just make the art of songwriting your bitch. He, like, there's no, I can't name a single songwriter who does as many weird fucking things, which is what we're about to get to <laughs> yeah. a lot of. As he Shit's has done. about to get weird. Shit is about to oh, get weird. So he made a he made a great point. We were talking. He said that the the drummer at this point in Neil's band is who Ron Tut, who played with Elvis Presley. Yeah, because this is around the time where Elvis is you know nearing his demise, and so Ron Tut's got a lot of time in his schedule, and so every so people need to understand at this point. So people say all sorts of horrible things about Am Gold in that era and Yacht Rock in that era. But the people playing these songs, they only know how to play one way. So, like, when there's other stuff that's happening in music. Oh, I don't know about that. No, but I know what I mean. Like, I mean, it's in the sense that, like, they're not going to suddenly play punk rock. And they're but, not going to suddenly they, play disco. But, well, uh, but like, let, let, but let, let, me, let, me, let me try to refine that, what you're okay, saying. Because, because I think, I think what you're saying is actually wrong. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and this is why. Okay. They know what, how to play who hires them wants them to play if somebody hires them to play punk rock polka fucking uh weird slovenian dance music weird russian dance music okay they can do let it. me refine my point okay at this time people were trying to break the idiom of pop music uh, yeah yes yes so like these players play pristine pop music mm-hmm. that's all no, no matter what genre it is it's all they know. It's all they're tuned they come, in. They come from a big band, though. Right. And when you're a songwriter, and as mm. someone who's aspiring to be a songwriter right now, <laughs> I would kill to have people like this right? who who you just listen to them. I Just imagine. Are, are you you listen- saying we're not? No, I'm... Oh, I see. I mean, See, no. this is, this is no, like, spoiler. No, we're, we're, writing, we're writing a country song, yeah. people. So, oh. I'm saying, I'm saying, it's going to be multiple. It's like three now. It's, this is happening. I have a okay. whole album we probably can get out of this. At but, least an EP. Yeah, so, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I like, I like the aim high. But in any event, if you have players who just sit there, and I'm sure they're just noodling around... Mm-hmm. And putting this together, and then you get like like the bridge that turns into the chorus. That just comes because you hear them playing the bridge, and you're like, "Wait, wait, that's that's really that's really really solid." Well, and it's the, it's the line between like groovy fucking music mm-hmm. and like being like these guys can fucking jam. As you, I mean, look look at the uh, fucking Wrecking Crew. Look at like anybody yeah. he's playing with. Look at Amy Elvis's band. These are people that could play jazz. They they weren't they were in these bands because they. They weren't uh, the best jazz of the era because yeah. we had actual greats. <laughs> Miles Davis, yeah, yeah, right? We had, we had actual greats at the time, but you know they can do that. And if you and like, I think that is actually, I think that's right. Yeah, I, I, I think what Neil Diamond could hone in on is like hearing these guys play and be like, "This is so groovy. Why don't <laughs> Why don't I just do something with this instead of trying to like make it fit into another thing? I'm gonna fit this because that's the elevation mm-hmm. here with Neil." And this is what makes his stuff get weird yeah. in a way that like, okay, so that's the elevation. So like you start in the sixties with like, okay, I'm writing a song. I'm coming up with the melody. I'm coming up with the chorus. Here we go. going to go in and record it to the point where like, okay, now I'm my own artist. I'm a singer songwriter. And I have like players that actually are like, I don't care what I pay them. Cause at this point, the rock and roll industry is making astounding sums of money. 
So you're like, okay, these guys are going to be in here. And if they need to take five hours to do this, I don't care. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it can be a lot longer, too. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, we, we talked about it like early on. There's like no fuss. Like, yeah. you got your song. It sounds but nice. We're going to go in. We're going to bang it out. And we're but done. But there's fuss in here now. There's, there's like fuss. There's experimentation. Fuss. Well, and, 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 and different people bringing things to the table, too. And, and so with Forever in Blue Jeans, we talk about Ron Tut. Yeah. This is the, the beginning of his band for the rest of his life. Right, because every time I've seen Neil Diamond over the past decade, Ron Tut is the man behind the drum kit, and he is the band leader. Right, he's yeah. the com- he's the he's the arranger guy for the live right. shows. Um, and and I don't know who it is, but when this this last show when they uh, when he was introducing Forever in Blue Jeans, he introduced his guitarist who's up on stage, yeah, who was with him back then in the late seventies. Um, and his that guy's so, son is also on stage, by the way, which has got to be a pretty cool so, gig. But uh, he he introduces the song as his guitarist had the lick that uh, that initial right. lick, and that's I think all he had. Yeah, and he's like, "Hey Neil, I'm gonna play this little <laughs> you know this little line for you. What do you think?" And I think Neil had some funny story about I'm, I want to watch. You know, baseball on TV or something, but I'll listen to your dumb lick or whatever it is. And right. of course, boom, he hears it. They sit up all night, they write this song, and it's a smash. So, as someone who's probably written a song with the band before, like physically in a room, mm-hmm. have you done that? I've done that. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, what's, what's the moment like when you realize that, like, your band can play anything that you're thinking? And you're like, okay, I'm writing this song about X. And I've got like an idea, but then you hear the band that's like able to like you, you are confident that these players could take your thematic idea and, and blossom it into anything. So now you're like, okay, I could write. Yeah. I mean, whatever, you know, it, it, it's an electric feeling. There's no way to actually describe it without sounding corny or contrived. <laughs> uh, but when you have this moment where a group of people yeah. or, one, or more than one people are, are all tapped into this same thing and the you know what's coming out at that moment and you all are participating physically and mentally and emotionally mm-hmm. is greater than the sum of that parts it's it's true would you say it's kind of like you got the touch you got the power you, it, it's <laughs> we we when we all have the power yes when you all have the power okay that's right okay just just want to make that clear oh, it just yeah. um yeah, we're actually uh, much like the Kravitz episode. We're a little time traveling here because um, that's what, that's what Neil Diamond did. Uh, he predicted his future. I think with a song that we're going to play right now. Uh, this is uh, I like your notes. Uh, one of the best damn songs ever, and and it is. And and but I think this is where you and I have that shared experience because if you don't remember, uh, I'm, I'm pointing at you right mm-hmm. now, sitting in the back of the car, whether there's camels or whatever it is hearing this song like a lot it takes you somewhere this and copacabana different different podcast barry manilow but oh, but uh you know songs on blue at that point it was like eight years old still on the radio still in, uh, it just it's a fucking monster hit and was a a sign of things again. to come so uh, here's song, songs on blue songs on blue been like a willow Song, song, blue, sleeping on my pillow 
can sing it with a cry in your voice And before you know it, get to feeling good You simply got no choice Yeah, that's Roger Miller. That's like, so, Roger Miller is one of the great country vocalists of all time. Not saying that Neil Diamond made country music, but there's a real in argument. the jazz singer he traveled to the country i i know he did and it's a, there's a whole and there's a whole like thing about how country was the grand unifier in the 70s mm. for like all of these genres because country was ubiquitous like you know it was on mainstream television every day of the week like it was just a thing that and people liked the aesthetic of like this kind of like not even rebellious outlaw but just like cool songs about cool things Mm -hmm. which i feel like country really nailed and the thing about neil diamond is that he has this voice that like he copies your aesthetic but then he mixes it into his own vibe and then everything comes out sounding like neil well drew you were just blown away by like this little movie does but like i that's actually something a little more subtle than that like, while we were waiting for that to happen, like, we're, you're like, hold on, hold on, wait for it. But then he does this thing where he's singing Roger Miller, and like you said, he just pops in over into Neil Diamond mode. Right. And it's the weirdest, most confident and sweaty, this is where it <laughs> gets into a sweaty 80s, move, and, and this gets back into, and the word is actually what you said earlier, seductive. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no reason for him to be seductive in the song, but it flips over into like, uh, hey, are you, are you, you listening to me now? Yeah. Yeah, and that, and that first verse where he repeats the, you know, sing it out again. Yeah. And it's that half step right. down. And he doesn't do it again in the rest of the song. He just does it that one time. And it's, it's just got such a powerful effect. And that voice. I mean, you brought up the voice. It's... I, don't, like, I don't even know how to actually bring up and talk about this guy's voice. It's got such a unique tamper to it. It's a part of that seduction, you know, uh, yeah. effect that he has. It's New York. There's a timbre to it yeah. that's that's unreal. But 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 I mean, you can you can place it. It's New York. It is uh, to my ear, like honestly, like specifically like Jewish, which is something I don't say a lot. I, like, no. I, 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 no, but there's a very specific Jewish right thing, right? It's, it's his it, upbringing. It, there's there's ways to use language that different cultures or or just uh segments of society use and that, and and he is able it, it all works in it feels like it, it i can see his heart light <laughs> oh, <great. laughs> no i mean but it, it feels like as opposed to a lot of music that uh we all are fans of it feels like this is an actual like sweaty human being like talking to you Right, and maybe that's off-putting for people. I for me, it's not. For me, it is like, yeah, this is. I, I know this guy is singing these songs. He's way more talented at a thing that I would love to be talented at than anybody I know. But he still is just like, hey, what are you guys? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a there he, he there's a certain like kind of naturalness in the way he does right? this. There's like saying. a relaxed, right? The natural, the naturalistic style of of Neil Diamond. I could see is is an off-putting point. Uh, it feels people look to pop music like for escape, and it's just like 
your cousin sitting and saying, like, I'll make a, I got a song I can sing to you, right? <laughs> I, got a, I got a question to ask the room, because this is sure. like a thing about singing songs. So, like, Neil Diamond, to me, because he wrote so many songs for the radio, mm-hmm. is a guy who learned how to sing from listening to the radio. And I don't know if anybody else in here, I feel very much akin to that because I learned how to sing when I was a child. I sang in the choir, like I sang in like my, my glee club. And I learned how to sing from literally listening to songs on the radio and mimicking them. I can mimic anything, or so I thought. And I feel like that's the same thing that Neil has as a vocalist, is this ability to like take the popular songs of the time mm. And then, because people are comfortable with that, and because mm-hmm. he's been so comfortable in writing pop songs for all of his life, and then, like, you take all of that, and then you weave it into yourself, and then, again, you shoot it out, and it sounds like how it yeah, sounds. Yeah, it, it's some weird, like, superhuman talent for, like, processing the culture around it into something that is uniquely his, but is also exactly the culture. It, 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 it I don't even know... It, it's like the T-3000 or something <laughs> of, of fucking pop music. Yes. Uh, and when, when you... You know, and unfortunately, we're not going to have the opportunity to see him live again because he has been. Which is why we're doing this off of the off the road yeah. for, for due to Parkinson's. But um, he's also somebody, and, and and you know, it's not totally unusual for male vocalists to for their vo- voice to actually age well, and 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 he is a he's a, a case of that, where at seventy five, seventy six years old, and he comes out on stage. And, you know, within his the first couple of lines that he belts from that stage in an arena, his voice has actually aged so well. And it's like a lightning bolt across Glenn that Campbell arena. Glenn Campbell did that, too. Um, yes. You know, the, it's richer. It's got a, maybe a little bit of grav, you know, yeah. gravel yeah. aspect to it that gives it more gravitas yeah. than maybe he had in the 70s. Yep. But it's... But, but again, there's that magic quality about that voice that, you know... He's born with. He learned how to use it. He learned how to use it, like you said, singing to the radio. He he yep. he, he studied. Yeah. He did an anthropology on like everything that like excited him, and it was like, okay, now I want to look. This is how. This is how all of us get like turned on enough to like create art, right? You you mimic you mm-hmm. you copy everything, and then all of a sudden you're like, fine, I just I figured out how to make my own shit, mm-hmm. and then and then you go forward from that, and you never. You never abandon like mimicking this stuff, but you you forge your own path. Um, I don't think his voice though was any better than it was in the eighties, and this is partially because hearing it on AM radio stations in a backseat of a fucking Datsun, like with the camel filters, with the camel filters. Well, my, actually, no, my dad smoked, so yeah, <laughs> he he smoked. Uh, what did he smoke? Uh, Marlboro Light Menthols. Oh, ooh. Yeah, it was hard. It's a bad day when I stole from him. <laughs> so I was like, what the fuck are you doing? But um, Neil Diamond hit his peak, and I think this is where, uh, if you look at his career, this is where it fell off. After watching the movie last night, I would say this is not where it should have fallen off, but I understand where it fell off. You know, after basically 15 years in the biz... Um, they're making Xanadu was around the time of this, maybe not quite. I can't remember what year. Xanadu's eighty one. Eighty one. So, so yeah, it's same era. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so the year after. Um, but the idea is like, hey, like we do now, 
if you're good in this medium, you should you're gonna kill it in this it's, other medium. It's time to go make a movie. Yeah, it's time to go make a movie. And and so what he wanted to do was make a a movie a remake of the uh, classic Al Jolson, the the jazz singer. Um, and as misguided as film uh, was. It featured Neil Diamond, for example, in blackface. Uh, within, within the first ten minutes, like I, I'm just like out of the way, look, just out of the way. And and this is this is literally a thing you can look at it and say this was a different time. <laughs> yes, and like you, Kevin, as we were talking about this earlier this week, like I was like, yeah, like on HBO, like the you know the jazz yeah. singer was on all the time in the early '80s, and I I can't imagine how many times I saw this movie, I, and I was I really count. young, but it's. Pretty much been since then, since I saw the movie. I didn't go back and watch it, but I Wikipedia'd it. You should. And I realized like how problematic this movie was. It, and I like it, I didn't remember. It, it, it's problematic, but it's also not it's because like so what I said to Marcus today was how this kind of defined not just like how I see music in general, but like live music, but like how the star system and everything, and it's all based on Neil Diamond, and it's so subconscious. Because watching it down here uh, was Sam the Cat, actually. Sam. He watched the whole damn thing. and All two hours of yeah, it. Yeah, all two hours of it. And it, it, was, it was surreal because this is... I, you know how you see stuff you don't know that it's burned into your brain until uh, you see it again and you're like, fuck, that is... And, and so this is like in my DNA now. But one of them, there's two reasons. Well, three. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna hit all three of them, but uh, the first reason is because I liked pop at an early age. One of my favorite songs, I wish I still had the forty five, was uh, Dolly Parton's Nine to Five. Oh. It's another movie like this, or like they put although that was like Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin. That, that was a three star vehicle, right? Well, we there. can all agree that was an amazingly great album or, or movie. And album. In, and in, album. Yeah. in retrospect, it still yeah. holds up. That's yeah. the, the craziness of it. So, so we're mixing They're together all these. We're mixing together all these '80s feelings and stuff. But I think this was right at the start of this, and um, this song, "Love on the Rocks," at eight years old, there is no way for me to understand what the fuck this song is about. Right? Is it about alcoholism? Is it about? Is it just a metaphor? Like, is it a genius metaphor for, like, I, I, I don't know. But I know it resonated, and I know it, it imprinted. And, uh, and that's why we're going to play it right now, because uh, this is, to my mind, one of the greatest, like, up there with Tom Waits songs, like, ever written uh, about heartache. And uh, so, Love on the Rocks. It's like a vodka tonic with a twist. <laughs> <laughs> Love on the Rocks. Ain't no surprise Just pour me a drink And I'll tell you some lies Got nothing to lose So you just sing the blues All the time Gave you my heart Gave you my soul Left me alone here with nothing to hold Yesterday's gone Now all I want is a smile 
That is one smoky scotch glass of a song, and I, it's it's only going to get worse, kids. So if, if you are offended listening to this, if you haven't bought into our, our narrative of why you should be listening to Neil Diamond, I would suggest maybe tapping out This is now. what we call a slippery slope. It is a slippery yes, slope, but it's a great, <laughs> it, 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 it's a great slippery slope because I think in all the uh, implied feels, uh, writing for other people writing for other characters throughout his career, right? And acting. And even though this is actually acting, like this actually feels more genuine than almost and uh, all the songs on this album. This was his best-selling album of all time for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The jazz singer. Uh the movie currently has a 15% <laughs> approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. To that I say fuck you millennials, but uh neither here nor there. Uh the we just need to get the silent generation onto Rotten I, Tomatoes. I think yeah, so. I think so. Because because this is where you, as there's 80s keyboards that hadn't quite like penetrated and perpetrated everything. This is the most Neil Diamond that Neil Diamond has ever been. This is like the pinnacle of, like, I don't think he's a character. I don't think he's writing a song. I think he's actually talking about his experience and trying to figure this out, which is a, another remarkable trick of songwriting and how much you give away as a songwriter and remarkable that in 15 years he didn't do that. And then all of a sudden here it comes and the three songs we're going to play demonstrate that, right? I, I, I think so. I mean, he's not, he, 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 he has no qualms about, you know, who he is at this point. Yeah. Um, no. And, and 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 again, who is his 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 demographic is, um, who he's singing to, um, it's 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 not an you know there's no irony here. Um, it's 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 you know there's a lot of sentimentalism. He's a romantic at heart, and he and he's unapologetic about it, and he's just gonna put it out there, and and you know let the critics be damned. He's obviously never been a critic's darling. And, right. and and doesn't care at this but, point. And, and the seventies was where romanticism died, right? Yeah, so I was going to say divorce rates in the seventies are like skyrocketing. Yeah, everything was like you can't be a romantic, right? And then here comes this motherfucker. I mean, at the same time, this movie's very problematic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we all agree it is problematic yeah, yeah, it on is multiple problematic. levels. Um, you know, for for one, uh, it, the, one of the main plots past, which is a main plot. Uh, of the blackface, but past the blackface, uh, his wife comes out to see him sing. Well, this this actually reminds me of my favorite album, and something we're going to do something on later. Boston's third stage sees him on stage once, talks to uh, the future father of Neil Diamond's in the movie's child, Rabinovitz. Is that yeah, Rabinovitz? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, and and within the space of the time it takes for him to get off stage to the uh, dressing room door has decided, well, this all isn't worth it. We've known each other for 15 years. We, we've been married and blah, blah, blah. And this just isn't worth it. And then, you know, Neil, Neil 
Avatar Neil Diamond is set, <laughs> set free in the freewheeling like West Coast to uh, to do what he likes. Uh, no, and and you wouldn't get that from that song necessarily, except for the fact that like all his other songs are very puritanical. And, and I bring up Tom Waits, and and later like you get into Billy Joel. I mean that's directly that's Piano Man, right? Uh, you know, the, these torch songs that, uh, people can just hit on again and again and again. And if you do it right, it just, it just fucking works. The whole song's about a glass of booze, but it's about, as a metaphor, as a metaphor, as a metaphor. but about, but it, yeah. And what it, what it will all do to you. Um, he went on, and got smaltier, uh, but greater. I, I think, I, I think. This is also uh, a thing you have definitely heard. If not, you should hear. Uh, it is played no less than five times in the film The Jazz Singer. <laughs> this is true. Uh, in can, very, can, various... we, can we describe the best scene that this, this song accompanies? Well, let's quick? do that after. Yeah, let's afterwards. That after. Yeah, because it's... But, but again, place yourself in uh, outside of time, outside of space, and just... You're, you're looking for these cosmic... like truth vibrations that are that are gonna hit you right in your heart and and along comes like this satellite called Neil Diamond and and he's got and he's got hello again and the voice hello again hello just called to say hello I couldn't sleep at all tonight And I know it's late But I couldn't wait Hello, my friend, hello Just called to let you know I think about you every night When I'm here alone And you're there at home Hello I'm to blame But I put my heart above my head We've been through it all You love me just the same And when you're not there I just need to hear Hello my friend, hello. So I want to talk about love songs. I want to talk about that it's love song compared to every other love song. Um, despite the actions that are taking place on film, <laughs> where he goes into the wilderness for three weeks, grows a beard, plays some country music, comes back, and he's got like a six-month-old kid. <laughs> yes. That's the magic of Hollywood. Um there is a ownership and a responsibility in that lyric 
uh, it's good to love you like I do that isn't just raw it it's like it it is the rawest it, it this is like he's saying like love is right mm-hmm. and that really like got me last night when I was sitting down here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no i mean that that people search for metaphors for this shit where you don't need metaphors like he's talking about this doesn't have to be distance this doesn't have to be uh this doesn't have to be you're running into somebody after a set amount of time it's just waking up like it's it's raw lyricism like at its core like who the fuck does that who the fuck does that so, so you know what i'm going to say kevin it's this whole thing about how a lot of songwriters feel like because they know every word in the English language, they have to use every word in the English language. The real genius of songwriting is that you take language and you take yeah. feeling that every human feels and you just say that. Right. <laughs> like It's like, mm-hmm. because no. why, why would you say no, anything you're, else? You're right, but nobody does that. Right. Except for Neil Diamond. Name me a song like this. Anything. Anything even close. Anything close to that sentiment. It's the only thing I was thinking of is "Hello by Lionel Richie," but even in "Hello by Lionel Richie," like that's stalker, that's stalker shit, right? There's like there's like long, expansive sentences about you know how much he like you know loves this blind woman who's making a sculpture of his face, right? But you know this is great because it's like economy, like again, the great songwriters, you you write the word that people know about the thing that they feel. Mm-hmm. To me, that's that's the that's the epitome of songwriting, right but, there. But how do you get? You've seen him three times, and so you you understand the performer in him. How do you like put that performer aside and get to that? That's not even po- That's that's not even songwriting. That's just like here's the truth, motherfuckers. Yeah, I mean, I think he's 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 speaking again. He he's he's tapped in. Um, I think to a certain um, you know this the sentimentality, the sentimentalism. Yeah. Uh, a, there's there's a romanticism to it. Hello, my friend. Hello, I just called to say you know. Or, you know actually, that's like the uh, the Lionel Richie. What is it? The same lyric? I don't know. Maybe, you know. I mean, we we already, but, we already decoded that one a little bit earlier. Um, I I think it's you know all I can say is that I can relate to like growing up, my parents listening to a song like this, pouring a drink. And just connect, you know, using this as a device to connect emotionally with each other. This was a a, a, right. a way that, you know, I imagine a lot of people of their, you know, cohort, age cohort, did. And I didn't get it at the time. I rebelled against it at the time. You know, I had, uh, I was fortunate to have a brother who was four years older than me. So I was like into music that I probably shouldn't have been into right, at right, the time, right, right. ACDC and Kiss and Rush and then punk rock. And so the 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 bombardment of Neil Diamond at that time was was not uh um welcome as much as 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 maybe, you know, it might have been. And it wasn't until I started, you know, going to Neil Diamond shows 10 years ago roughly um that suddenly it it hit me, you know, and and I got hit with a nostalgic a nostalgic kind of flavor that I'm not actually used right, to right, in right, music. Right, exactly. 
And and it was but, it, it was and that's my point is like if you go back through his whole catalog, there there this is the most distilled song. It is the most cheesily deployed song in the album or in the movie. Yes. There's a point where he's literally Which like, you at, use it five times. We're going to get the times, most the, out of this like, song the, as we possibly can. Like, this song. Like, so he, he uses it as like, this is the song I'm working on. And then he uses it as, this is a song that I'm going to play for somebody. And then uh, wrong person he played it for. And then uh, when he makes it big, he uh, plays it. And I, I was sitting here watching like, please, Neil Diamond's lady in the movie, don't mouth hello to him. And she did. She did. <laughs> she, she did exactly that. Um, and and but then uh, you know, and then uses it as yeah you know, when he goes on his his walkabout and comes back and it's like, and it 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 just it is so like grounded and to me this is uh, this is a romantic. Maybe Moses would like it. I, I think he would. Like this is this is just simply like about need and about. Uh, deciding the things that you want and then okay and and at least as far as the movie's concerned you know he 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 really had to work really like a long time on hello again and then this yeah. song just kind of appeared on stage yeah like without any rehearsal it just it just, just kind of came out of left field it's something it, we're gonna hear yes yes it just sort I'm of materialized because, because he because a lot of the jazz singer the the neil diamond version is about uh jewish people in america it's about his family's his family's immigration to america and um it in 2018 i don't I would hope it would play well. I'd say, as, as schmaltzy as it is, it is it is the hope that all immigrants have had coming to this country forever, right? Yeah. It's uh, you know we it's, need to, we need to hear this song again. Yeah, it's time to hear this song. Yeah, again. it's time to hear this. Song. This is, this is, so this is uh, the the climax, uh, the, one of the many climaxes in the jazz scene, but this is the ultimate climax. Uh, this is America. Only one be free We huddle close And hang on to a dream On the boats and on the planes Be coming to America Never looking back again Don't it seem so far away We're traveling light today In the eye of the storm In the eye of the storm Home To a new and a shiny place Make our bed and we'll say our praise Freedom's light burning warm Freedom's light burning warm Everywhere around the world They come into America Every time that flag's unfurled They come into America Got a dream to take them there They come
America. Fuck yeah! <laughs> Jesus! Coming out to save the motherfucking day. Yes! That was 1980, guys. My country. 1980. Disney. That was when uh, an immigrant family could celebrate <laughs> coming to America and had, had good damn cause. I want people uh, to understand. Ronald Reagan was the president of the United States. Yeah. Like, really. Like, newly the president. Right. Well, newly yeah. president. Newly elected. We were, fr- yeah. we were fresh from, you know, the, uh, the what's the name? The, uh, the, the Jimmy cr- Carter. It was just Jimmy Carter and uh, the, the crisis had just ended. Mm-hmm. We, had, we had just gotten the... The, uh, the Iran hostage the crisis. The Iran hostage yeah. crisis had just ended. Like, it, this is not exactly like a time it, in America it, where, like, a song that's, like, you know, welcoming of all, like, races and, you know, types of people yeah. is, like, plays well. But because it's Neil Diamond yeah. singing it, it. But it did play well. Right. And, and you know, you, and it's not just, you know, Carter before that. And, like, immediately, I mean, a decade of, you know, the end of Vietnam, which right. didn't go well. Yeah. And then Watergate and this malaise. Yeah. And just maybe America wasn't feeling too great about itself. Yeah. And it needed Neil at least on the musical front, to come along with a song that just makes us all kind of come together and sing, today, we're coming to America. Right. And feel good about it. Right. It's astounding. And, and sadly, uh, though, this was, um, it wasn't the end of his career. But it was the end of his popular career, right? It's the it's the waning days it's the, uh, of well, his, maybe his, his relevance in pop culture. I think. I mean, if you scan, if you scan the eighties after this, uh, there is uh, "Heartlight," which we're not going to play, but uh, was directly influenced. He wanted to write a song about ET, the extraterrestrial, mm-hmm. the film. That's not. That's humping the culture rather than like guiding <laughs> it, you know. And uh, and this is a great song, whatever. Uh, but you know, you never saw him really uh, have the cultural relevance past this point but the we said this on the on the uh, Lenny Kravitz podcast too like the beauty of all music is that it is it, it it is just completely time travel like it doesn't matter what he did past 1980 like this whole body of work exists it's there and it's there forever mm-hmm. can you make a statement mm-hmm. about the the music before saying that okay so like working at decades bring decades into conversation because I deal with Retro theme music, literally twenty four seven three sixty five. Before nineteen like eighty seven, when like synths and electro became like mm-hmm. a real part of like the mainstream top forty pop idiom. Every ballad of every year owes its entire soul to the career of Neil Diamond. Yeah, like like yeah, can, total I, eclipse I, of the heart. I can go sign that. Like. Well, yeah, yeah. That, that <laughs> like, is a, there's a thing because, like, we, as we saw in the '80s, there was this weird uh, emotional, like Bonnie Tyler. Yeah, was one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, fuck, it was. A, I would just about, um, I, the song from Top Gun, "Take My Breath Away" by Ber- Berlin. Yeah, Berlin owes yeah, its yeah, life yeah. to this. Mm-hmm. Like all these gigantic I mean, yeah, heartlight is probably the key to a lot of that stuff it might be right so like these gigantic Let's, pop songs you, do that, we need to do it yeah, yeah i think we need to do it this, the, you know and, and this song like i mean he 
you you sense it with like hello again and love on the rocks this kind of easy 80s approach the keyboards the light drums this kind of thing and 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 he goes all in on that approach with Heartlight. It's, yes, he it's uh here's a song about et come back again I want you to stay next time Cause sometimes the world ain't kind When people get lost like you and me I just made a friend A friend is someone you need Now that he had to go away I still feel the words that he might say Turn on your heart light Let it shine wherever you go Let it make a happy glow For all the world to see Turn on your heart light In the middle of a young boy's dream Don't wake me up too soon Gonna take a ride across the moon You and me I'm going to say this. Uh, that is my second second favorite song associated with the movie E.T. First favorite is something I listen to. Like uh, you guys weren't here. I have from childhood the John Williams soundtrack of E.T. The piano work on that is fucking fantastic. I, I suggest revisiting it. Then after that, you go to Neil Diamond. Uh, that's not even appropriating culture. That's just like trying to like infect it. And I, what, what is he doing? <laughs> just, just you know, he saw the movie, and he the themes hit him, and he probably went home and was like, "I'm gonna write a song about this." Yeah, I don't get it. I mean, somebody can weigh in a little bit. He got sued, I guess, because he was inspired yeah. by this movie yeah. and wrote a song about it. And they were so, like, "Hey, so you when, stole when our he, inspiration." When, when ET came out, I remember I saw I, it was at Myrtle Beach. When it came out, and it rained that week, it was summer vacation, you know, for middle class white family. That's what we did. Yeah, water slides, and mini golf, and uh, and it was raining, so you go see a film. I saw E.T. four times that week, and still, it's still, it's, a, it's an amazing film. But how many times did Neil Diamond see it? Because I didn't write a fucking song about it. I didn't base anything in my life on it. I like. <laughs> I just saw it. And I'm like, yeah. If 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 it comes on, I'll watch it. Like I've never watched a movie and written a song because I was inspired by the yeah. movie. But right? you know, but I he can wrote Im- a hit song from yeah. the movie and he got sued for it. But I can imagine also there's a whole thing of like feeling like okay, so this is like 1982, right? Yeah. So like Michael Jackson is literally at this point the largest artist in the whole entire universe, mm-hmm. and every song, every style, every genre, every feel. Every idea is Mike's. Thriller was 84. 
84 though, right? right. 84, but he's yeah. like, this is like after his like period between right off the wall and the wall. thriller. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. and this is when he's getting the song. So you can imagine he's like an industry guy. Hmm. So he's looking at this Michael Jackson kid coming up. He's looking at like Prince coming up. All these artists that he's looking at himself in the mirror. And you're like, okay. And MTV is happening. All this stuff is happening. And he's looking at Neil Diamond. He's looking at Neil Diamond in the mirror. And he's like, I need to be relevant and hip and of the time. And maybe I'll watch this movie that all the kids and all the people yeah. seem to yeah. like. And I'll write a song that's which inspired is a, which by Which is this. a shame. And, and it happened to a lot of our, uh, our songwriting heroes. It certainly happened to Glenn Campbell. Oh, totally. Uh, the second time we brought him up. But, I mean, it, 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 a very similar career. Yeah. Although Glenn Campbell was always on the inside. I think I think he was on the inside of the Brill Building, like Neil Diamond, but he he rebelled a little bit. Glenn Campbell was just like, damn right I'm in the record. <laughs> and, you know, you can... I, I've been collecting his uh, 70s output on vinyl, and, and I don't care what condition it's in. It's fucking... Like, so, so maybe you can help me out because, you know, you're not the first person, Kevin, that I've talked to that has a, a similar experience growing up in the 80s yes. and, ha- and, and, yeah. and getting exposed to Neil Diamond from your parents. Now, with me, that was all my parents listened to. Yeah, like, no, no. The, the, their entire record collection consisted of pretty much nothing but Neil Diamond. It's fabulous. Maybe the Andy Williams Christmas album and... and, and and that's probably just because I don't think Neil Diamond had put his Christmas album out yet. No, I I, I think it's because your parents maybe were a little hip. So like I heard it from my aunt and uncle. Okay. And uh and because like my my parents actually record collection was a bunch of eight tracks. The pinnacle was which was Muskrat Love. Like there's an eight track of Muskrat Love, but we had this uh you know we talk about charter schools these days and stuff. Uh, we commuted uh, the the business that my family ran or my mom was in charge of was in a place in Virginia called Bedford County. And if you think about rural Virginia, schools suck. Mm-hmm. So you have a 30-minute drive to get to Lynchburg where the schools suck marginally less. <laughs> But uh, but to yeah to your point like you're you're in the back of a car, right? And and you have these commutes and you have people in charge of what you're listening to, and I have often wondered maybe like you, if this is just what was on the radio or if this was the taste of the people who had it because right. I know I know my parents' collection, which was non-existent. They they were not music lovers. Yep. Uh, and then I know my aunt and uncles collection which they were but they i mean they were strong basic like classic rock they're like neil young's the shit aaron neville's the shit right yeah usually what i hear is i'm not gonna dig too deep too much deeper so so when you get neil diamond and barry manilow for me was in there which i think it was for you too and they're they're connected they are i mean i've heard a lot of like you know oh yeah you know growing up it was you know it was neil diamond and cat stevens or it was neil diamond and paul simon or neil diamond and barry manilow yeah for me it was neil diamond it was just neil it was just neil diamond i mean i think that was it i mean that was like that's incredible that was it i don't know you that well but that does explain a lot sir (laughs) 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 i i mean 
I at least had fucking Barry. Yeah, I didn't have Barry. God. I didn't have Paul. No Copenhagen. I didn't have Cat. I just had Neil. I didn't hear Cat Stevens to college. The, but the, 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 I had my brother. The point. And so I had yeah. Piss. Yes. Oh, the point. But the point you're trying to make, yeah, is like how this like gets filtered into younger generations. I think, mm-hmm. and, and why why were our like elders listening to this? I hope we just made the case. I like, th- I hope we did. I yeah, think we did. Be, be, because where they're coming from, if you're not a uh, if you're not a hyper music fan or musician or like any all of us in this room popular music is is a game um that basically uh, appeals to the base levels of enjoyment it's easy it's easy to hit it that's why we have imagine dragons now that's why we have florida georgia line no i'm serious no really uh the difference is is that uh we have all apparently gotten Really fucking dumb because that's all that Neil Diamond was doing. Regardless of what he wanted to do, he was tasked with appealing to the base enjoyment of the people out there to make money for somebody else, and he succeeded wildly. And, and is it, that a bad thing? No, it isn't. No, it's it's not. It's not. Give, I give it, my it right ha, arm for Neil life. Diamond ha, right ha, now. Has shelf life, as we see. After the jazz singer, like, he did not transition to the 80s. He did not do a duet with AHA. He did not get on Dream of the Blue Turtles with Branford Marcellus. I would have given a, my right arm for a Neil Diamond duet with Ann Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> but, right? what, but what he right? did do, and, right? you know, yeah. and maybe a Seriously. little bit of this is due to this kind of, you know, early aughts resurgence due to uh, Saving Silverman and, yeah. you know, which I, I, I didn't see, but it, it seemed like he kind of tapped into like a new generation. Well, he had the hits. He, but those hits endure. Yeah. And, 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 you know, seeing him in these concerts it is a multi-generational love affair celebrating mm-hmm. you know decades of music of this man um that is it's easy to love if you allow it to happen yeah i think yeah i think that's it we're done we're done yeah uh thank you guys for being here and, uh, of course and, and neil diamond it's easy to love if you allow it to happen see you guys soon Touching hands Reaching out Touching me Touching you Neil Diamond for you right there. Uh, I hope now, after sitting through all of that, that you have come around and you now realize uh, the genius of, of this man and how uh, not just he sort of won back in the day, but helped shape songwriting culture. Uh, you hear us mention Nashville a little bit, but there's a lot of, of Nashville, at least the ethos, the work ethos. And what he was doing, uh, along with legends of like Glenn Campbell, Paul Simon, uh, all those people and uh and man it felt really good to sit down and talk about it maybe we'll do this some more uh, later on down the road just pick a songwriter 
and then go straight through their career uh, because there's a lot to be learned, I think, from exploring. Even, you know, I learned a lot doing this. That I have my explicit experience with Neil Diamond, but uh, as you go through the stuff like his 80s output, his uh, his aughts output, his 90s, and, and his producer, you, you learn a lot by doing this research, and it's rewarding, and it, and it makes the songs resonate a little little stronger, and it uh, it turns on your heart, is what I'm saying. Now that's it for another episode of Chunky Glasses, the podcast. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Glad you spent some time with us. Uh, if you really liked it and you haven't, this is your first time diving in, go ahead and subscribe to us on, on Apple Podcasts. You can do that in iTunes or through your, uh, your Apple Podcast app. You can leave us a radio or message there. We love, love, love feedback. You can also give us feedback at podcast at chunkyglasses.com. That is an email that comes directly to my face, and I will read it, and I will likely respond to you. Uh, you can also always check us out at www.chunkyglasses.com. You'll see the amazing work of Matt Condon, Mauricio Castro, and Avery Junius there out every every night covering the live scene and while we sit here in a basement and nerd out about music. And also, last but not least, uh, big thanks to our podcast provider, Pippa. Pippa.io, you go there, uh, give them a few bucks, and uh, and as long as you have a good idea and so a little recording apparatus, then uh, you can have your very own podcast out there on the airwaves, on the internets. only thing I ask is is that you uh, not, not create noise. If you've got enough noise, just uh, do something meaningful. Do something... It can just be meaningful to you, but... Uh, enough of the enough of the marketing podcast. Uh, we, we you know have have a human discussion and, uh, and make the world a better place. And with that, uh, we are out of here. We'll be back in a few short days. Until then, be good to your ears, but be better to your people. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> <laughs> Kenobi!